Exodus 19. I want to. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Let's start verse seven. So Israel's left Egypt. They've been redeemed by God through Moses. They are. Uh, they've approached Mount Sinai. So Moses, in verse 7, came and called the elders of the people of Israel and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them. Set them apart. Sanctify them. Then today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Verse, let's go ahead and 16. On the morning of the third day, there were, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. When Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. (coughs) Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. <coughs> and the Lord said to, the Mo- said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. Do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Quick prayer. Father, as we read your word, as we proclaim your truth, open up our eyes and ears to see and hear. Uh, Create in us clean hearts, O Lord. May your spirit lead us unto holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.
So when we make our way back to Hebrews 12, we remember we came out of the section talking about fatherly discipline, the discipline of God towards his adopted children, how the purpose of that was for what? Holiness, our good. Uh, And then Sunday night, if you were here, we talked about the truth in verse 11 that all discipline seems painful. And we discussed how the purging of sin is painful and how uh, even but after that pain, uh, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so we don't want to fight against the sufferings which we find ourselves, but seek holiness and obedience and to love the Lord more in our suffering as he trains us, as he disciplines us. And purifies us. And then in verse 12, he he moves into the message of then encouragement, of knowing, of basically what we've just said. <coughs> that the Lord being in control of all things and doing all things for the good of his children, we can lift up our droopy hands and strengthen our weak knees. And we can walk straight paths. And not be scared of being put out of joint because our Father loves us so dearly. But then verse 14 sort of shifts a little bit. And what we get when we start verse 14 and through the end of this chapter is the final warning passage in Hebrews. Now it's been a while since we've been to a warning passage. That would have been in chapter 10. (coughs) We've got to remember that... The book of Hebrews is scattered out with warning passages to people not to forsake Christ. Telling them, Christ is better than anything and everything. And if you leave him, if you forsake him, there is no offering or sacrifice that remains. And if you fall away from Christ... As Hebrews has said, you are in danger of falling away forever. And so chapter 12 gives us, the end of chapter 12 gives us a final warning. But within the warning is an exhortation and also some encouragement. And all we're going to do today is we're going to go through verse 14 through 25. Uh, We're going to start with the exhortation. Then touch on the warning, a little bit of encouragement, and then back to the warning. So look at verse 14. Three things pop out to us in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now there in that, in that verse are marks of a Christian community. Two of them are real obvious, peace and holiness. But there's one that you have to think about a little bit, and it's the word strive. Uh, Your version might say uh, pursue. We are people, a Christian community, are people who strive together. If you think about Hebrews, again, especially going back to chapter 10... What has been the theme? Approach God. 
Go into His holy place. Endure. Remain faithful. Do not shrink back. Stand by faith. Do not grow weary. Endure. All of these things Christians are to do in striving for the presence of God and for holiness. We must endure. We must not shrink back. We must press forward. But what motivates us to strive? What motivates us to continue? What motivates us to pursue Christ and the glory of God in all challenges and trials and discomforts? What is that thing that leads us? And it's faith. Faith is the motivation that puts us, that pushes us. Regardless of circumstances or situations, we strive and pursue, we endure, we press on by faith. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Conviction of things not seen. So we strive forward to the things that we're hopeful for. The things that we cannot see. We strive towards the throne of grace where we find help. Where God is working in us and through us. See, God isn't just letting us hang on, but He is actually pressing us forward. As we strive. And this is a part of that fatherly, godly discipline. He is pushing us closer to Himself. And in that, we're feeling the pain and the discomfort in our sufferings and our trials. But we must strive and remain and hold firm by faith in the things that are out in front of us. Working all of this, the Lord is together for our good, our holiness, to share. In His holiness. This is what we must understand when it comes to a church, the body of Christ, striving together. We must understand it this way. We must be a people who are found walking in step with what God has said. You must be a person walking in step with what God has said. Not, But not just walking, but pushing and enduring and pressing on through obedience to His Word and His will. Because as you press and strive to walk step with God's Word, you will have outside forces pushing you backwards, like trying to swim upstream. And one way you're going to get pushback is when you pursue peace with everyone and you pursue holiness. We are people, we must be people who are striving for peace, number one, with God, number two, among us, and number three, with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. What makes a good church? What are the factors that one would think to calculate a successful church? You ask anybody, you're going to get tons of different answers. They're going to say, man, I really like the music. Oh, the teachers are great for their, our children. Or perhaps, you know, the preacher, I like the way he preaches. Or maybe the congregation is beginning to grow and we're at 200. Or we're having to make a bigger, uh, build a bigger building. We're successful. We're a good church. And I would say, no, I don't think so. If someone wanted to know 
if there if a church was a good church, a successful church, I would say a faithful, healthy church, I would ask the question, is there peace among them? Is the peace of God among them? And I would say that for your home too. Is the peace of God in your home? Do, do they backbite? Are they quarreling? Do they gossip? Are they talking about one another behind each other's back? Do they grumble and complain? Do they desire one another's company? A healthy, godly church is a church where there's peace among the people. Where gossip is like vinegar. Where grumbling and complaining will not be put up with. And where we come together in desire of one's company. Because we have peace with God and peace with one another. But what about a desire for holiness? Is that a good church? Well, I would ask, what do they think about their own sin? How do they approach sin? Are they pursuing to grow in Christ's likeness? Does the word of God dwell richly within their hearts, leading them to maturity? Not just in what they know, but in, in being like Christ. Are they zealous to be holy as God is holy? These are marks of a Christian community. And the writer of Hebrews tells this, this church, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one... We'll see the Lord. These are the things the adopted children of God desire and work for. And so I want to ask you, are these your desires? Do you desire peace with the person you don't know behind you? Are you easily offended and taken, up, taken aback? Do you backbite or do you seek to have peace among the brethren? Do you desire to put away your sin, even if it means suffering? What if we weren't? What if a Christian community did not pursue these things? What would happen? And this is the very thing he warns us about in verse 15. It's tough. Look at verse 15. If we're a church or any church that does not strive for peace and holiness, the inevitable result is verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. A church that, does, a church that fails to strive for peace and holiness is a church that will be set up in bitterness. And when the, the bitterness builds, what does it say? Trouble takes hold. But then what then flows out of that trouble? The word is used, many become defiled. Now you know that's the exact opposite of what we're called to do in verse 14, in holiness. 
bitterness, trouble, defile, morally corrupt. But see, in our day, well, I would say even, no, even in the day of the apostles, many churches can pretend. You think about Sardis in Revelation 3. What was their reputation of being alive? But what did Jesus say to them? You're dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. Why? Because their Sunday school classes are big. Their children's programs are great. They have a wonderful food ministry. Their choir is huge. All the while, they're rotting spiritually. But see, in Revelation 3, when Jesus speaks to Sardis, he holds out to them an opportunity for repentance. But he also makes it clear to Sardis that if they do not repent... There will come a time where it will be too late. What gets us right into the to the meat of the warning we see here in verse 16 and 17 when the writer picks up on the story of Esau. Look what he says. Verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, which he sold, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, this is not fun to preach. This is not easy to hear. But you have to understand, the writer of Hebrews wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that churches would examine themselves so that Christians would examine their hearts so that they would not fall away from the living God as Esau had walked away from his birthright for a single meal. We must take heart as we read this warning and don't say, oh, Luke's going again and all getting all negative. I'm just preaching what's here. So just pay attention. And I, it's not fun. When you look at Esau... What did he strive for? Temporary things. He sold his blessing, his birthright for a single meal. He stumbled over temporary satisfaction, losing his lifelong inheritance. And what caused it? A bit of hunger. Now, We don't really have to worry about that these days. But there are many things this world offers that we might stumble over. And we might sell out to be satisfied. It could even be your own comfort. It could be your own pleasure to give Away Christ to be satisfied temporarily. But he turned away. Esau turned away. He gave it up. But then what did he want afterwards? He wanted it back. Now this is the warning. This is the warning. But when he came back, He had no opportunity to repent. 
even though he sought it with tears. Now, this doesn't... We have to move on to help us kind of understand this a little bit more, how we want to work through this and apply this to what, where we are now. And so in verses 18 through 24, the writer of Hebrews does something to give encouragement, but also to help us to understand this warning a little bit more. What he does is he takes two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai equaling the Old Covenant, Mount Zion equaling the New Covenant, and he compares and contrasts them. He pauses in this warning to remind us that the ministry, the new covenant of Jesus, is better. Now, here's where Hebrews is hard to connect to. This is written to a bunch of people who have left Judaism. Anybody done that in here? No. We're ta- the writer is talking to people who left the sacrificial system, turned from... Uh, uh, serving false uh, turn from how's he say it I'm sorry purified their conscience from dead works to turn and serve the living God and so the concern the writer had with this group of people he was writing to is that under pressure like Esau got hungry right under pressure they would return back to Judaism They would return back to the bulls and the goats and the sacrificial system. He was concerned that they would turn back to the old things and reject Christ. Much in the same way Israel did in the wilderness when they left Egypt. And they got a little pressure. They got hungry and they wanted to go back into slavery. So what does he do? He tries to persuade them of the superiority of Jesus and his new covenant by comparing these two mountains. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Mount Sinai being the old, Mount Zion being the new. Let's read it. 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word may, words may be made the hearer beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So that's why we read Exodus 19. This is a summary of what we read in Exodus 19. But notice in 18, he tries to encourage them in saying, But you have not come to what may be touched. Now, Mount Sinai is a real mountain, a physical. You could walk up it. You could touch it. You could stand on it. But when they saw it, what did they see? They saw a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the the earth trembled. The major emphasis of the description of Mount Sinai was that it was unapproachable. And it was terrifying. If even you touched it, God would kill them because he was on the mountain. And by 
The writer reminding them of Exodus 19, he was saying to them, this is what he wanted them to see. If you leave Christ and forsake the gospel and return to the law, this is what you will return back to. Terror. If you leave Christ and return to the sacrificial system, you return to the works of the law, you will return to a fire, a darkness, a gloom, a tempest, and you will be so terrified and unable to approach because no man can approach God through the law. No man can come to him through the blood of bulls and goats. So he says, do not go back. Do not forsake Christ. And in verse 22, he says, but this is what you've come to. So you have not come to a mountain that cannot be that cannot be approached. That is terrifying and, 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 and uh, full of judgment. But 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, you all know what Mount Zion is? It's kind of it's kind of one of those things where we just know it and say it, but we don't really quite understand what it is. Mount Zion is a, a, the hill that which Jerusalem was built upon. Um, God commanded that his temple be built on that mount. That his, his city be established. That Jerusalem would be the place that he would dwell and where we would worship. But, more so than that, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is the city, the place in which the new covenant was established. Do you know why? Because that's where Christ's blood was shed for the new covenant. This is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for you. God commanded his temple to be built there. The new covenant was established there. And Mount Zion is the place where which Christ will return. Mount Zion is the place that signifies the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But it's not Jerusalem or a mountain as we would think of it. Because look how it's described in verse 22. For you have not come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Sinai you can touch. But you've come to a place that you cannot touch. You've come to a place that is spiritual and heavenly. And what we'll find out next week, that when you're at this place, nothing can take you from it or separate you from it. For it is the city of the living God. And in this city, verse 22, we see many angels We see the assembly of the firstborn. The church stays and dwells in this city, on this mountain. But then it gets real heavy. In verse 23, he says, Not only on this mountain in this city do you come to angels and to the church, but you come to God. But notice how he describes him. The judge of all. Now, I didn't explain Mount Sinai very well. And let me help you understand this a little bit more. Mount Sinai, the law came forth. Do you want to be judged by the law? 
No. Do you know who judges you by the law? God. You come to God to be judged by your good works. You will come to a mountain with flaming fire, darkness, and gloom, and you will tremble to death. But that same God who is on Mount Sinai, you also come to him on Mount Zion. Now, how's that? How is this same God predict, or projected as blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, terrible to, come, terrible to be in the presence, and not even a beast can, can approach without being stoned, but yet you come to Mount Zion with angels and the church, and there is God, the judge of all. What's changed? The mediator's changed. The man who stood between God and man has changed. Who stood on Mount Sinai? Moses. Moses. And Moses walked off Mount Sinai trembling in fear. And all he could tell Israel to do, kill another bull. Slaughter another goat. I have nothing to do to offer. He came down Mount Sinai like his brothers among him, a sinner. You approach God through the law. You approach him in judgment. But who is the mediator upon the Mount Zion? Look at verse 24. Not only do you come to the city of the living God and to angels, to the church, to the God who judges all, but verse 24, and you come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus stood on Mount Zion. Do you remember what he said in his ministry? I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to go to Jerusalem and he goes to Jerusalem and stands on Mount Zion like his brothers as Moses but yet without sin. He stood on Mount Zion not just as mediator between God and man of a new covenant, but in the rest of verse 24 and to the sprinkling blood. He comes as the sacrifice. Moses comes down, kill another bull, kill another goat. Jesus goes to the mountain to be slaughtered. He goes as a mediator and as the eternal offering, as one that would satisfy the wrath of God, the judge of all. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word through uh, than the blood of Abel. Now, that's a weird statement. Jesus' blood speaks. The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word? What is he talking about? What does the blood of Jesus say? Flip over to Hebrews 9. Verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. The blood of Christ speaks of a secured eternal redemption. Look at verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. and Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ shed his blood and his blood speaks of forgiveness of sin. It speaks of a purified conscience from dead works to serve a living God. It speaks of renewal and redemption. Chapter 10, verse 17. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The blood of Christ shed the mediator between God and man. The only reason we can approach, we can approach an unapproachable God, the judge of all, is by the God man, Jesus Christ, who stands on Mount Zion and who one day will return to that very place. And it's all because of Christ, the work of Christ, that we approach the mountain, that we come to him, that we strive together in peace towards holiness, to press on, as Paul says, to make perfection our own, holiness our own. Because when Christ shed his blood, he made us his own. See, the blood of Christ speaks victory It shouts victory in Jesus. And the blood of Christ exhorts you to remain steadfast, enduring for his sake and striving for peace and holiness. Verse 25. He goes back to his warning and says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who is speaking? The Son, Jesus. Remember the Israelites? I didn't really touch on this back in verse 20. No, I'm sorry, 19. When the mountain shook, when Mount Sinai shook, and the words of God came forth from it, Look how they responded. And the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. They were fearful and frightened. And they did not trust God and his word. Now we talk much about the fear of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord as we know it, that we must have, leads to awe. Love, reverence, and obedience. But we know as the Israelites in the wilderness, as they trembled in fear and then left Mount Sinai, they left in disobedience, without faith. And that's why the writer of Hebrews tells us and warns us, don't be like them. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with them was he provoked for 40 years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Israel did this. 
after they saw the mountain tremble. This is what they did. They plugged their ears and turned their back. That's what they did to God after they saw him upon the mountain. They plugged their ears and they turned their back. I'm actually using my translation of Bible words here. Look at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse this plugging ears. Him who is speaking. Because this is what they did. For if they, the Israelites, did not escape when they refused him, plugged their ears, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject, turn our backs. Reject him who warns from heaven. The words of God came to the Israelites through one man, Moses, who dwelt with them on earth. Do you see that? But now God is speaking to us today, right now. God is speaking to us from heaven. And you think, well, wouldn't it be more significant for someone to speak to us from earth than in heaven? Not if that man hung on a cross, died, and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. That makes it pretty significant. But there is a man in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God speaking to us today. Speaking to us to strive together in peace, to pursue holiness for which he had died for, to hold fast in the midst of trials. To pursue, to approach the throne of grace. To endure the discipline of our Father who is doing it for our good. To remain and not to fall away. And we must listen to Him. We must not plug our ears and not turn our backs. But seek Him. Seek His word. Seek His direction. Seek His guidance. And and seek holiness. By faith we must listen to Him. By faith we must obey the Son. By faith we must love Him. Of course, if you're thinking this through, you're like, but Luke, we're not going to become Jews, right? Isn't that really what we're talking about? We're not going to go back to the law. We're not going to abandon the gospel. Well, be careful. Because you you might not ever have the temptation to become a Jew. But you have every temptation to fall back into good works. You have every temptation to approach God and say, hey, look at me. I think I did pretty good today. Because that's what they were going back to. To find righteousness within themselves. And you don't have to go back to the law as known on on the tablets. No no, No one is going to, no one who abandons Christ... Let me say this the right way. You don't have to become a practicing Jew in order to find yourself at the foot of Mount Sinai. Because you might not have received the tablets, but the tablets were written on your heart. Every human being has their conscience seared by the law of God. And if you walk away from Christ and you stand before God at the foot of Mount Sinai. He'll say, all right, let's judge you by the law. And you say, I didn't have the law. 
He says, yes, you did. It was in your heart the whole time. When you lied, you knew it. When you stole, you knew it. When you forsook, you knew it. When you hated, you knew it. Why? Because the law was written on your heart. You will not be able to say, I didn't know. None none can make all or without excuse and will stand before God. If you stop listening to Christ and stop holding firm to His gospel, you will fall back to your own efforts and find confidence in your flesh. And you will not be able to escape the judgment that comes from such terrible, terrible judgment of Mount Sinai. Because if you turn your back on Christ, as it says in Hebrews 10, there is no other sacrifice to be had. And if you say, okay, I got it, Luke. So I'm just going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep reading my Bible. And I'm going to do good to others. Then God will see that I've not abandoned Christ and His gospel. And I'll say, no, that's the trap Satan's trying to get you into. It's not about what you do. It's not about how much you come to church. It's not about how much you read your Bible. It's not about how good you do to the person across the street. That's the same way a Jew would fall back into trying to keep the law. You're going to stand before Christ. You're going to stand before the judge. And the only way to please God, Hebrews 11, is by what? Faith. Now don't hear me wrong. If you have faith, guess what you're going to do? You're going to come to church. You're going to read your Bible. You're going to help your neighbor. But you're not going to stand before God and say, See? You're going to stand before God and say, I'm so glad that Christ is here too. I'm so glad my mediator is here at this heavenly city because my works are but filthy rags. I have no no part in being here apart from His works, apart from His death, apart from His resurrection, apart from His mediating work, apart from His work as high priest. I am here at Mount Zion, the holy city, because of Him. That's it. One final note. And this goes back to what we talked about this morning. This is a warning to us as a church. Who should be a pillar and buttress of the truth. One who is entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ as we said this morning, right? This goes back to the idea that doctrine matters. What we teach matters. And if we... If we, as Ozarks Bible Church, start preaching another gospel, if we water it down so that more people will come, if we don't like the parts about sin and and so we avoid it, if we start talking and preaching and proclaiming something that isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't send people to Mount Zion. We send people to Mount Sinai. We're no longer messengers of reconciliation ambassadors ambassadors of Christ but we come become messengers of death 
ambassadors of Satan. And we make converts and turn them into double sons of hell. When we water down, when we forget the true message of Mount Zion, the grace of Jesus Christ. Let us not be bewitched like the Galatians. That thinking that we can be saved and brought into this kingdom of God by faith and then only to continue in our own flesh by good works and deeds. The message of the gospel is what justifies us and what keeps us and what, pursu- what, what pushes us into holiness and sanctification. It is the message we preach. We come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem through Jesus Christ, trusting in his works. We come to God through Jesus Christ to be saved from the judgment of God, from our sin and disobedience, to be saved from the fire, the darkness, and the gloom. We come to God through faith in Jesus Christ and tremble not in terror because we have been, we have been, we have been brought into the family of God as sons and daughters of a heavenly Father. So, again, do not refuse him who is speaking. Listen to the Son. All you who are in Christ, church, listen to the Son. Listen to Him and strive, because He commands you to strive for peace with everyone. He commands you to strive for holiness. He commands you to strive for Christ-likeness, for without it, you will not step foot on Mount Zion. Listen to the Son for all who are here right now and are lost and under God's condemnation. You stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. And you ought to be trembling in fear. But hear the blood of Jesus calling out to you. And it is calling out and speaking of an eternal redemption, a purification, a forgiveness of sins. Hear him, all of us, and do not plug your ears and turn away. All of us must hear him and strive to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that your work does not rely on the rhetoric of a man. Your work does not rely on the clarity of the preacher. Lord, we know that your word does not return empty and void. And the power, the power of salvation to all who believe come from the truth of your gospel. So would you please work in the hearts and the minds of those who heard your word today? And may this week you preach a better sermon to them than they have heard this morning. And may you hold fast to them so they would not fall away and find themselves find themselves at the foot of Mount Zion or Mount Sinai. Keep us, O Lord, that we might sing, it is well with our soul. And that one day we will stand before you and you will tell us, well done, 
good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.